Hello everyone and, and welcome. Welcome to this evening's Enterprise Tuesday. It's lovely to see a, a full house as it always is with these events. Um, I know many of you won't recognize me, so I just wanted to say hello. I'm the new executive director for the Entrepreneurship Center, um, taking on the role from Hannity, uh, who I will pass on the introductions to in a second. Just some housekeeping. Um, the fire exits behind you, there are two of them. There's also one here. If at all, we do need to use those, so please pay attention if that's necessary. And also, uh, for courtesy to the, to the panel and, and, and your fellow guests, um, if you could switch off your mobile phones, that would be very helpful. So without further ado, um, welcome to those of you like me who are uh, new to the school um, and perhaps to the Entrepreneurship Centre, and to those of you that are more regular visitors to, to this event series. I, I think you're in for a treat, and I'll hand over to Hannity to take it from here. Can you please join me into welcoming Bruno to the um, uh, Judge Business School and to Cambridge? We stole him from Imperial, and I think you know he's a bit nervous. And you all are so cold. Come on, a warm welcome to Bruno. So um, I'm Hannah Jibado. I'm your chair for the evening. Um, as Bruno explained, until January, I was the um, executive director of the Entrepreneurship Center. Um, I can say now, at the tender age of 46, that I have retired. It's wonderful. It sounds amazing. I'm still the director of Accelerate Cambridge until um, uh, another month, until the 28th of March. Um, and then I'm moving on to um, a different role, doing something really exciting, and very happy to talk about it um, over Q&A. But this evening is not about the judge, it's about uh, the very nervous people over there. Can you give them a big, warm welcome? Come on. <laughs> In the space of half an hour, they will demonstrate how to do the best pitches. There is not one way of doing one pitch. And they will also demonstrate what mistakes you can get away with and which mistakes you can't get away with. So that's going to be interesting. Um, I would like you also to give a really warm welcome to our amazing panel. Um, and they will introduce themselves later on. Come on. Warm welcome. <laughs> And standing between us and an evening of pitches and feedback is Kevin Bardwell, who is um, the University Relationship Manager for uh, Santander Universities. And joke aside, I'm incredibly grateful on a personal level to Santander Universities for the amazing support that they've been giving all of our entrepreneurs through various schemes um, where they do it um, with no commercial purpose. I keep on giving them grief for not following up with the commercial uh, aspect. But they have a very clear definition of what CSR is and what they do for commercial purposes. So if you want to find out about the other services that Santander has for um, you as potential entrepreneurs or SME owners, you should talk to uh, Kevin. He's not staying for the networking because he's got children duties, so we approve. But uh, I know Stephen is in the room. Stephen, could you identify yourself? Stephen Parks? So Stephen was here earlier on. Um, so if you want to find out more, you can find Stephen in the um, uh, networking and he can give you more information or you can contact a member of the team. So Kevin has been volunteered to test a new concept. Kevin, do you want to come closer? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, would you mind coming closer? So this is a lift. 
and um, when Kevin starts talking, he's going to get in the lift, and the lift will be going up a very tall building for two minutes. And when uh, his two minutes are up, the doors of the lift will open up, and his time will be up. That's what the entrepreneurs will be doing later on, but they'll have three minutes. That's what we call an elevator pitch. So um, I was explaining this to the members of the panel and said, I didn't realize I was in Dubai. This is a Burj Khalifa lift. There's no building in Cambridge where you can be stuck with someone for two minutes in the lift. Um, obviously, you haven't taken the lift at the judge, uh, the slowest lift in the whole universe. But um, I'm, I think that uh, Kevin is incredibly brave to have volunteered to doing something like that. And certainly, he didn't know he was going to do this until two minutes ago. So please, let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you for that, Hannity. Um, yeah, I'm enjoying this already. I um, just want to remind you that we haven't quite met yet about how we're going to spend the, our funding for next academic year, so um, be careful with that. So um, my name's Kevin. I'm the Relationship Manager for Santander Universities, and I've had the privilege of working with this great university for the last 11 years. Um, and we've seen some fantastic businesses and entrepreneurs come out of the Judge Business School. Now that I've only got two minutes, I can't say what I was going to say, but my role is basically to create life-changing experiences for students and graduates through education, entrepreneurship and employability. So I have a very privileged role um, in terms of helping higher education. What I'm here today to talk to you about is a competition that we will be running, which is the Santander University's Entrepreneurship Competition, where you have the op an opportunity to win up to £90,000 worth of equity-free seed funding, access to mentoring, a free intern, and also part of our Acceleration Week, which is a fantastic prize on offer for any student or graduate of Cambridge University. The eligibility criteria is that you need to be a business that's no, no longer than 12 months trading, has not received more than £100,000 in investments, prizes, or um, any revenue, um, been a recent graduate, and also have not employed more than five people, but that doesn't include the actual owners. All the details are actually on the website for the Entrepreneurship Centre. Has the lift opened yet? Um, <laughs> Just wanted to say, last year we had a fantastic business called Pocket Diagnostics, who are unfortunately not here this evening, which I had the privilege of working really, really closely with, um, who made it to the final and were actually runners-up. So I was immensely proud of the university and the business themselves. So this year, I need a winner. So who's going to come up, enter the competition and win it for me? Thank you. The door is just opening. So... <laughs> so, uh, Kevin had prepared a long um, speech that was going to take us completely off course and off schedule, and he was able to deliver his message in two minutes. It is possible. So, if he can do it, the entrepreneurs can do it in three minutes. Maybe we should reduce it to two minutes. Let's think about it whilst the panel introduces themselves. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to pass on to our wonderful panel. And um, they will introduce themselves, they will introduce um, who they are, what they look for in a startup, and um, what they look for in a pitch. Andy, would you like to kick us? Yeah, sure. Hi, um, my name's Andy Phillips. I'm a graduate from, um, from Cambridge. I was a Natsuki a long, long time ago, back in the Jurassic period. And, um, and then went into research for about 10 years before um, going to do an MBA at INSEAD. And I sort of had the belief at that point that all these companies I'm working for are being run really badly. I must learn how to run them. So I went to do an MBA, came out, um, tried to buy an olive business, um, 
I found a business down in the south of France that produced very expensive spiced olives and was going to, um, uh, or put an offer in, <coughs> at, at which point my cousin rang me and said, this was in 99, the, uh, the internet is just beginning to have a massive impact on business. It's probably the biggest thing to hit business in the last 30, 40 years, and you're buying an olive business. So um, I didn't buy an olive business, and we set up a hotel booking business, um, which at the time was called Active Hotels. We grew that to be the largest online <coughs> hotel booking business in Europe and sold that to Priceline. Um, I then led the purchase of another company called Bookings BV, and, um, and the company that had just bought me, Priceline, <laughs> said, if you think this company's so big, um, good, you, you merge it with yours. So we merged it with Active Hotels and formed a company called Booking.com um, here, which you know, is now a pretty sizable business. I think it's now got a market cap of 60, 70 billion um, dollars. Unfortunately, I sold it before it got to 60, 70 billion dollars, <laughs> but, uh, but never mind. Um, I made enough money out of that to, to buy into a company called Top Table. Um, so I bought into that, and then we sold that in 2010, 2011, I think, to um, ultimately to Priceline again, actually. So Priceline ended up buying that. And since then, I've made 40, 50 um, angel investments, mainly in tech and marketplaces there. Um, Hannity asked me for some guidance on, on how to pitch. Um, I have a, and this is tremendously simplistic, if you've got advice from the judge, take that advice, not from me, all right? But um, my, my advice, is, if, if you're pitching, is, is to cover four things normally. So I would normally try and get someone to cover the problem. You know, what is the problem that's out there that I'm trying to solve? And I'm not normally interested in, you know, this problem is just something that I'm quite interested in. I'm interested in a problem that's really grounded in customer feedback. So the best thing I want to hear from someone who's pitching is saying, I have talked to 200 customers, or I've got, ideally, I've solved to 200 customers customers, but it's grounded in consumer feedback rather than in macro research from Forrester or Jupiter or Gartner. Um, I then want to know what, what the solution is and why it solves that problem, preferably endorsed by customers or someone um, who's got real expertise in that space. The next thing is credibility. So address the problem, address the solution, but then tell me, tell you, tell me why I should believe you. Um, every single business plan I've ever seen always has a revenue chart or a profit chart that starts at zero and gradually moves up towards infinity. And unfortunately, having made lots of investments, um, not all of them um, have that trajectory. So why should I believe that this is true? What is the thing that is most credible about your business that I should hear? Is it that Larry Page is a seed investor? Is it that Alcatel has just um, invested in the business or has just bought off the business? Is it that I've got a fantastic team? Whatever it is that sells it best, um, um, try and get that across to me. And then finally, most investors are numbers junkies, so cover the numbers as well. This is a seven trillion opportunity. The gross margin expected on this product is 85%. I'm raising 1.3 million and it will be deployed in this way or whatever. I want to have some idea of what the finances and the, um, the numbers look behind the, the business plan. Um, I've invested, as I mentioned, in quite a few businesses. Um, some of them have gone well, some of them have not. One of the key things I'm looking for from a pitch though is enthusiasm. I want someone who's really energized, motivated, determined to make this happen. Because I know um, that the, the journey will be difficult here. So if you're not enthusiastic now, there isn't a chance <laughs> that you're going to get through it. So um, getting the enthusiasm across is really important to me, but it's also really important. You're always going to have to try and persuade people to do things that are not entirely logical. You want people to give up great jobs to come and work in your startup. You haven't yet got money. You haven't yet got premises. You're going to try and persuade them to do things. And unless I can see that energy and that ability to change people's um, opinions, then I find it very hard to make the investment decision. Right, I think I will leave it there. Thank you very much, Andy. Um, can we thank Andy? Thank you.
I'm per personally very grateful I've never pitched to you because it sounds very scary. John, do you want to carry on? My name's John Lee. Some of you know me here. Um, I've been in Cambridge for um, 35 years. I came after my parents refused to sign my consent papers to join a Premier League football club, uh, <laughs> and which I think was a sensible decision, one of the more sensible things they've done and I've done. But, um, and I never regretted it because, you know, to be good at anything, you have to be in the top half percent. It doesn't matter whether you're playing professional sport or the best business person in the world or the best scientist. Um, I have a maths degree um, and I came here, um, my first major job was to work with Clive Sinclair. This is the spawn of the home computer business, this is what really brought tech into Cambridge. The combination of working with great science, with great scientists in the university. Um, and Acorn and um, Sinclair worked alongside each other. Um, there was the famous punch up in the Baron of Beef in 1986 over a Christmas campaign. Um, but it spawned that sort of competitive thrust that made Cambridge what it is. And when, when Sinclair was sold to Amstrad and Acorn was bought by Olivetti, a number of the engineers left and they all seeded businesses here. So it's, and then when they built businesses and sold them on, it created more opportunities here in Cambridge. And then life sciences came. Um, so it's a great spawning ground for some amazing, amazing people and some amazing technology. Um, I've, um, I currently am the Chief Financial Officer of DisplayLink, which is a very successful company, um, semiconductor and software company that connects any device to any display. Um, it's now over $100 million of revenue. When I joined, it was given the last rights, um, so it was really struggling. It's, a, it's an example, I think, for us all. It was a technology trying to find a market, not the other way around. So you always want to be having a market, you want to have an identified market. I think Andy said it. What's the problem you're solving? Does it exist? So unless you're in a market creation activity, um, there needs to be an existing market for what you're trying to do. Um, the three things I think are, that are worth thinking about is one is when you pitch, please do it in plain English. Please do it so people understand what you're saying. Please do it avoiding acronyms and business speak. Do it in a way which perhaps you if you have young children, they would understand it. So that's what I try to do. And often I would come home and my kids would say, I don't understand what you're talking about. And actually, you sort of refine the pitch. So don't bamboozle people with science. It's not, it's not clever and it's, and it's inarticulate. Just make it really clear. The second thing is, I don't know if any of you have read Rudyard Kipling, and I always say this when I talk to an audience like this, is that, um, so The Elephant's Child was about um, this person who employed six servants, honest servants. Five, began, five of their names began with a W, and one began with an H. And they were called who, what, where, when, and the H was how. So if you ask yourself the interrogatives, who, what, why, where, how, how much, when, and try and address those questions, you actually get the bones of a really good, a really good um, pitch. Uh, Andy sort of stole some of my thunder. Do, do understand the problem you're trying to solve and make sure that someone's prepared to pay for it. So understand what the pain pressure is for that individual or that organization, what it costs them, because it helps you then price your own product. M and make sure that your, mar your, your market is well understood as well. A lot of people uh, I talk to just don't understand the market. In, you know, I'll give you a really example, good example just to make the point. Someone says to me, I'm in farming. Farming's a trillion dollar market. I'm going to get 1% of it. It's just absolute nonsense because you find that they're actually looking for, for rare species of Hebridean sheep for which the trillion market is about 5 million. And so if you get 10% of that, it's probably not much of a business. So make sure you understand what we call the TAM, total addressable market, 
granulate it as far as you can possibly granulate it, take it through a sieve after sieve after sieve, and find the addressable market you're after. Because you may find it's not big enough, in which case you've just been a busy fool. So make sure you're tough on yourself, disciplined, understand the market, and make sure there's a problem that you can solve. Okay, thank you. I didn't even have to ask them to thank you. They liked it so much. Mandy. Thank you. Uh, hello, uh, my name's Mandy Calvert. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to have many more words of wisdom after <laughs> Andy and John. Um, I've got quite a different background. I studied engineering here many, many years ago. Um, perhaps did a little bit too much rowing rather than engineering, but um, that's another story. Um, and then spent 30 years in the life sciences industry. Um, doing a whole load of different roles from supply chain manufacturing through to IT, digital, facilities management. Uh, and a lot of that has taught me how you pitch internally as well. So I think some of the principles you have in a big company are very similar to what you have as an entrepreneur. They're not as, as different as you think. Uh, I now run a small business consultancy, um, trying to mainly in the life sciences sector, so we're looking at how you can leverage digital um, into, into better solutions. Um, and some of the things, uh, words of wisdom on, on pitching. I think I learned quite a bit from, you've probably heard the Toyota manufacturing system, which might not seem very um, relevant. But in terms of really thinking about the principles, one of the things, would your customer be prepared to pay for this? That was one of the things I used a lot in change management and working that through, and it's really important in your business, really, and I think uh, John Andy has said a lot about, do you know your customers? And they are just at the centre of everything you do. So really understand what's, what it is that the problem is they're solving, and make sure they understand <coughs> what you're doing too. So, and of course, it has to be monetized. So will they really be prepared to, um, and if you put yourself in your customer's shoes, would you be prepared to pay for it? And that's where the enthusiasm comes from. The other thing I think is good ideas don't just sell themselves. And having worked with uh, universities and good ideas in trying to build that through, it's not enough to just have a great technical idea. Um, one of the things is your product probably does need to be rare and valuable. So not just a great idea, but valuable to others. And I think that's maybe something to think about as you're, uh, you're on your journey through um, growth and pitching for investment. So I think three things to think about, really think about your customers, think about your ideas, um, and think about whether your customers are really going to be prepared to pay for your idea. And I look forward to um, listening to the ideas and answering questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, um, as I was sitting here listening to uh, Mandy, John, and um, uh, Andy, I um, remembered what uh, my two favorite tips are for entrepreneurs. Um, I'm not going to say the third one because um, Tony has already told me that he was going to break my third one, so I'll save it for later. But it's about being likable. People buy from people and people invest in people. And if you stand here and you're uh, too arrogant or you come across as arrogant, and oftentimes people like me who are shrinking violets, please don't laugh, I'm very shy, who are not comfortable doing public speaking, can project a very arrogant persona. Um, so don't just focus on who you are, but what people perceive you are. 
So if you're not perceived as likable or coachable, you're not investable. So try and control your persona when you pitch. So I think that's uh, very much uh, the first one. The second one, um, which was um, really daunting me sitting here as Ben was falling off his chair, um, is that your pitch is not just when you're standing here. You're pitching uh, before you come and pitch, and you're pitching during the Q&A, and you're pitching afterwards. The biggest mistakes I've seen in pitching is people give their best act when they have the mic and they have the stage, but actually they let themselves down before and after. So if you are at a pitching event, make sure you control your persona, you control your pitch from the moment you arrive at the venue to the moment you get home, because you don't know who's going to be on the train traveling with you. Um, I was on a, um, I was on a um, committee uh, judging a bunch of ventures and uh, one of the entrepreneurs didn't get the funding simply because he was traveling first class and he was traveling first class with one of the fellow of my fellow judges and he said well you know I traveled all the way from London with this young lad and he was traveling first class like me and I was like well you know he, he probably needed the comfort like you but it also tells you where is my money going to go? And I don't want to fund first-class tickets. So make sure you control everything you do from the moment you put yourself in the open space to get feedback or to get investment. Without further ado, I would like to invite entrepreneur number one. It's going to be friendly, John. It can't be worse than any of the practice we've done. Okay? Yes. Okay. So please, let's welcome John. Super warm. Uh, hi everyone, um, so as Hannity said, I'm John, I'm the co-founder of Orcascan, and so I, I want to tell you why we think um, barcodes are really cool. And so for the past 40 years, barcodes have been used um, to identify and, and recognise and track objects, um, real-time objects in the world. And so that's everything from, for example, the toothpaste you used this morning to uh, medical devices inserted into the, into the human body. The problem, however, is that although these, these barcodes are everywhere, the ability to, to scan these barcodes and view some meaningful information, so that could be, um, for example, uh, you know, when was this machine last serviced or how many of these products do we, still, do we have in stock, that technology or that, that functionality is kind of exclusive to enterprise companies. I know this because I've been in the industry for the past uh, 20 years and built, and built two of these systems. And so this unfortunately leaves millions of companies um, using pen, paper and spreadsheets to track assets. This includes medical devices that are inserted into the body are tracked with pen and paper, which is crazy when you think actually we're more likely to be carrying a, pen, a phone these days than we are a pen. Um, so, so because of that, we've actually built a mobile application um, that actually uh, allows companies to scan any barcode and capture additional information and then synchronize that information with a back office system. So that could be something simple like a Google Sheet or an ERP system like, uh, like a SAP, for example. Um, so we, we launched this product in the market just over 12 months ago and we bootstrapped the venture to now. We now have um, 34,000 registered, registered users. We scanned just over 600,000 barcodes uh, last month and we have just over 100 paying companies on subscriptions, including um, departments inside of uh, GE, Enterprise Rent-A-Car and uh, Mercedes. Um, so what we really think is interesting though is, is the market. And so there's, there's kind of three big incumbents and that's Zebra, Honeywell and Datalogic. And they're actually generating around a billion a year just off the sales of the dedicated handheld barcode scanners. So if you imagine our software has the ability to potentially disrupt that market. But the more interesting thing is we think because of the complexity of the hardware and the cost, uh, that, barrier to, that, that, sorry, that market is self-constrained. 
And so if we can simplify the technology by turning every smartphone into a barcode scanner and lower that barrier to entry, we can potentially onboard more users and significantly expand that market and obviously take a, take a, large, a, large, chunk, a large chunk of that. And so the way we plan on doing that is through integrations. And, and what I mean by integrations is through working closely with our users over the last 12 months, what we've noticed is most of the companies that are capturing data tend to take it from our system um, and then import it into, an, into a third-party platform. So that could be, for example, um, Salesforce, or it could be QuickBooks or Shopify. And so the interesting thing about these platforms is each of them have dedicated app marketplaces. And so what we're now thinking is we can integrate our software directly into these applications, automate that process. We can potentially tap into the millions of users on each one of these platforms and obviously bring them into the... Uh, into, into the OrcaScan um, system. And so, um, so that's kind of where we're at today. And, and obviously, um, yes, so obviously we're meant to be pitching for investment today, but we actually managed to close around this afternoon. So we're now looking for engineers to help, uh, to help build the integration. So, so thanks, yeah. Cheers. So you've closed investment just as the doors just, closed. Yes, so that's a good time. So um, before we pass on to the panel, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, even if you've closed investment, you're still raising. So mistake, you're always raising, even if you've closed the round. Yeah. Mandy, would you like to take the first question or the first piece of feedback? Um, right, very interesting uh, concept in what, in what you've got there. You talked a little bit about your customer base and opportunities. Um, what are the real problems that your customers, um, the customers you've got on your system already, are using your system for? So, so the most, mo most of the users actually didn't come from hardware, they came from just pen and paper. So they, they download the mobile application more out of frustration because they've got a manual task. So and our biggest use cases is probably um, car hire companies who would normally go outside with a pen and paper and they'd write down information about a vehicle and then they'd come back in, type it into a computer system. And so by using the, the, uh, the, the app, they can automate that. And it's similar again with, with Airbus, for example, who used to on an employee leave site, they would actually write down the, the bar barcode numbers of the, of the machines, of the phones and laptops, and so now they just scan that information. So it tends to be these, these small use cases like that. And what value have they? Well, so it's, I mean, it's completely, it's, it's automated that process, or it's kind of taken away that manual task, but it's also reduced errors. If you imagine people are manually typing barcode numbers into spreadsheets, and then there's probably thousands of these spreadsheets. And by, by obviously, they're more likely, as we said, to be carrying the phone. So if they can scan it, and all of the employees are connected to the same central repository, and they're all sharing and synchronizing information, suddenly it just becomes much more easy to say, where are my assets you know, at any point in time? And so that's, that's kind of what we think. John? Yeah, I was quite interested in your comment about lowering, lowering the barriers to entry. So if it's a smartphone and it's software, why can't someone just steal your lunch? You do all the hard work. Everybody's got a smartphone. Software, probably easy to rewrite. Yeah. What, reverse engineer. What, why, where's your protection? Well, that, that, is, that is obviously a challenge, but what we think is, it, it really is this, this um, listen to the customers and iterating quickly. So the last 12 months, um, just by listening to what the customers are asking for in terms of features and functionality, you could argue that that itself is almost IP, because normally when, a, when an enterprise company buys software, it'll be IT, and they'll kind of push it down to employees, but we're actually going bottom up in, in that approach. So by iterating, we're building a product that these people love, um, and so, and obviously by opening up the API and integrating with these companies, my experience tells me in the, in the IT industry, once we have these connections into large enterprises, the chances of them switching are significantly low. So we think um, longer term, the defensibility is definitely going to be in the integrations, but initially it really is speed, uh, iteration and, and things like that. So. 
So if it's, if it's know-how, which is what you're suggesting, I, then I your, your risk is, is on, know-how at the moment. Your risk is on the people who walk in the door every day and work for you, it's and, then, a, yeah, and exactly. then might leave. Yes, exactly. Until we get to the integrations, obviously. Yeah. Cool. I've got a really searching question. Do you travel first or second class? <laughs> cargo. <laughs> He's scanning all of the um, uh, things in cargo. Um, yeah, slightly, as in the, I thought it was a really good pitch, so thank you um, for that. Um, the 34,000 registered users, can I yeah. dig into that? Sure. You know, however much you say it's great, the fact that you've got 34,000 users says it's much greater to me. So trying to work out where you've got them, how did you acquire them, are they paying you, right. um, how long have they been there, et cetera, that'd be Yeah, so, so 34,000 users, um, so as I mentioned, we're free on the App Store, so we tend to um, generate uh, traffic, about 110 signups a day, purely organically, right. and so all 34,000 users have come in organically. Um, we have managed to convert um, about 120 of them now into, into paying customers, and that's by launching an enterprise product. And just to go back slightly, that's kind of where we see the, the IP, because the enterprise product came about from listening to all of these users. We would never have predicted it up front. Um, and so out of, the, out of them users, we've got probably about a, an 8% uh, churn. And that's really because we're still going through that iteration process to find out what the additional functionality we need and you know, obviously to retain the, the longer term users. And, and, and slightly relating to John's point, I guess, and I'm sorry, this is a really unfair question, but I didn't know very much about this. So I went and typed in barcode scanner free app yes. for inventory management and, it, and there was a, List results coming out saying the top 100 apps for you know, managing your inventory with yeah. with, with um, mobile scanners. Yeah, so it, it obviously has been recognised by other people. What's what's the beyond being free? What's the thing that really hooks customers? Because everyone else was saying they were integrated as to yeah, I mean, inventory management systems as well. I, th I think what, for us, what we what we've identified is the fact that it's fully configurable. So the moment we built the system completely platform or completely sector agnost agnostic. Right. And so we're listening to all the feedback from these various different sectors and trying to create generic functionality. <coughs> and this means that they can configure it themselves. So if you imagine if you go to one of the competing apps on the App Store, they might be looking, it might be, for example, vehicle tracking, but it will be very focused on that niche and it will typically force you to change your business processes. Whereas what we've built is if the actual business understands how to use a spreadsheet, they can configure hundreds of these devices and adapt um, the system around their business model. So I think that's, that, that in itself is unique. But really, it, it does come back down again to that, the ability to integrate it. So if you went for a typical hardware solution, you'd have to reach out to Zebra's consultants and come back with a business case and how you're going to build a system. And then in two months' time, you want to add a field, you have to go back to Zebra, hire engineers. In our system, you would configure it and you want to add a field, you would log into the application, add a field, and it rolls out immediately. So I think them kind of enterprise features are what gives it an edge. Can I ask one other question? So is there a scalable issue, scalability issue here? So you've got 34,000 users. Some of them are going to want support, yes. some more than others. So you're a small team. How do you support 34,000 customers and growing? Yeah, so we actually have one of our best ways of supporting really is, is, uh, is my co-founder Thomas who's on 24-hour live chat. Uh, that's, that tends to be how it, how it works at the moment, but, uh, but obviously over time, uh, yeah, support is going to be a challenge. We do have a dedicated support base, and what we do is we tend to um, obviously triage the issues that are coming in. We identify patterns, and then we produce articles. And the great thing about this, this, um, this um, live chat software is it can, it can actually suggest to us an article that this customer might, might, might be find relevant, so then we just push that to them. So we're able to stay very, very agile, but it will be an issue over time. And one of the issues we do have now, for example, is translations. So we have a lot of people in, in different countries using the system. They'll reach out in German or whatever it might be. So, so there's, yeah, there's a few, there's a few challenges. But we're going to expect to 
to solve them as we scale, obviously. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Thank you very much, John. Uh, can we please thank John? Great job. <laughs>
you know, would you be interested? Yeah. And they say, well, come back and talk to me when you have got it. And so you <laughs> go and talk to the lawyers and you haven't yet got any customers. Yeah. Yes. How would you envisage hacking your way into that? How do you? Um, so we've actually already started doing that. We're currently operating as a referral network um, right. for um, SMEs based in Cambridge. Um, so that's kind of how we've gauged our initial traction. And thereafter, so, so, so we've also been speaking with sort of sole practitioning solicitors um, and those who are working for perhaps smaller law firms who have lower overheads. Um, but obviously with the regulation change, we envision um, the fees to come down radically if we're associating with freelance solicitors. And, and, and I guess a follow-up question on that is, is um, it's, it can be hard to maintain the transaction online if you're going to if you're going to take a commission as it goes past. Mm -hmm. have, you, have you thought about how you maintain your position in the as a filthy parasite taking commission as it goes? You'll market it differently, yes. but um, yeah. you, you, there's a risk you end up being a discovery service yes. and they ring the lawyer up direct. Yeah, so we've kind of pitched our commission model based on what the likes of people per hour take. And obviously they're just a simple marketplace where they make an introduction and then the work essentially goes off the platform. Yeah. Um, and so we're basically hoping to build an infrastructure which is far more valuable to the solicitor such that they have no interest in taking the work off the platform at all because they then won't get any further work for, through us. Um, so that's also facilitated by the fact that we have um, a streamlined communication platform um, integrated within the system and of course the document sharing so that there's actually no, no real need to take the work off the platform. Um, so I suppose one other thing to add is that the solicitors we've spoken to are so conscious about their online profile that they actually want to keep, and this is something I've experienced as an online tutor, um, that they want to keep you know, their online presence um, alive. And so, yeah, having more clients through the platform is, is, a, is a good way to do that. I've got loads more questions, but... <laughs> John. Yeah, I was interested in what sort of solicitors and what sort of clients, and you talked about SMEs, but yeah. is, is it, is it, um, what sort of services typically would you expect your first clients and your first solicitors to be offering? Is it sort of quite low-level low advice, which is sort of not expensive? Yeah, so we're pitching ourselves above sort of the standard template documents that you can get off the internet, um, and more where people are looking for bespoke advice, um, but not so complex that it would require <coughs> a multidisciplinary team, for mm. example, although that's something we're looking at developing later. There, um, there is a law firm that exists already, I can't remember its name, but you'll probably tell me, <laughs> um, that actually where, where lawyers from the major firms yeah. have decided to leave the employment or partnership of major firms, yes, yeah. work with this freelance company. The freelance company does all the administration, all the introductions, you call a call centre and they say, oh, this is a person in Cambridge who can do corporate law or employment law. Mm -hmm. Fees are much lower mm -hmm. and the lawyer doesn't have to do any of the sort of baggage of admin. Yeah. Where does that fit into what you're doing? Uh, how there's, two, there's two relevant points there. So firstly, the regulation change does away with the kind of the the, cl the clunky firm structure, if you like, and makes it far more streamlined. So the commission that we take is far lower than what a firm would take when you're typically charging uh, for legal fees, which are anywhere between two thirds and three quarters on top of the legal advice that you're paying for um, from the individual solicitor. Um, and then, sorry, the second bit was? Well, yeah, but I think that what I'm talking about is, is, is really qualified, experienced solicitors who are yes, not yep. charging two, three, four hundred pounds an hour, but working for this national firm of lawyers who okay. are charging half those rates yeah and for actually for clients that's actually quite attractive because you've got the expertise but you aren't paying out the cost yeah so that's the model we're operating but those solicitors will only be able to operate on what we're calling like the sole sole solicitor um, umbrella at the moment so the regulatory change isn't coming into the summer that they'd be able to work on a truly freelance basis so we hope we'd be able to minimize the fees radically right. have you got any clients at the moment 
Yes, but we're operating, as I was saying, because we can't, because the regulation. Can't, regulation yeah. We're operating as a referral network at the moment. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Mandy, do you have a final question? Yes, often the um, relationship between uh, a solicitor and their clients is built on trust. How do you manage trust online? <laughs> so this is, I suppose, where we're trying to take a leaf out of the likes of Babylon's book, um, where they've obviously, I mean, accessing a GP online is <laughs> something that people wouldn't have dreamed of probably two, three years ago. Um, so essentially we're building trust by ensuring that solicitors are all regulated, ensuring that they have adequate PI insurance, even though that's not what's required by the new regulation. Um, a very transparent reviewing system, um, a digest of how many, how many um, matters they've dealt with directly via the platform, and you'd hope that those who have been instructed maybe 150 times would be trusted enough for you to, to buy your trust as a future client. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can we please give Sinead a warm thank you. <laughs> so, sh question for you, Andy, whilst Tony comes. Um, did, you, did you see yourself as a leech back in the day of Booking.com? I probably sold it slightly differently to my investors, but, um, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> so leeches can work on the internet. Yeah, just got a bit of paraphernalia to sort out here, but yeah, I think. I think so you do know that uh, the elevator doors open now. Oh, Tony Bellardi, um, co uh, founder of uh, Capito AI. You know what this is? This is an Alexa, voice-activated device. This is the realm we're in. We're in the realm of spoken language understanding, but we're applying it specifically to e-commerce and retail. So I'm sure most of you have tried shopping on these things. It's a horrible experience, uh, frustrating, high friction. And we did a test recently where we took one of the most popular food takeaway ordering apps to order a takeaway. Just 10 items, probably an average two-person order. And it took 50 taps, swipes, clicks, and nearly three and a half minutes. This is the problem we address. It's a huge problem, and we feel that putting a great voice experience in the hands of customers by custom building voice experiences for brands around that brand's data will keep the customers there longer. They'll spend more, they'll be happier, they'll be more engaged. That's what we do. So I know the big question you're asking yourselves now is, oh, what about Amazon? What about Google? What about you know, the, the Microsofts, the big guys? So where we're different here is those platforms are all things to all people. They have to be. Uh, where we're different is that we are in the enterprise delivering great experiences in the enterprise channels. And uh, we feel that if you deliver a great experience in the enterprise channel, the, the customers are going to spend more money. And actually, enterprises don't want Google, Amazon in their, in their internal channels. They're competing with them. So uh, we're a team of roughly 10 people. We're working with some big brands now. And uh, our ask today is for e-commerce contacts uh, to broaden uh, our traction. So I'm going to show you a, a quick demo of the kind of experience you get uh, with uh, a demo we did for a big takeaway food uh, brand. 
so let me just start that up. It's going to be a very quick one because I'm sure my elevator's nearly there. Ah, that's very helpful. Thanks. So I'm going to order a. Um, I'm going to order a an Indian some Indian food. I'd like to order ten poppadoms, an onion bhaji, two chicken tikka masala, and three pilau rice. I didn't say what kind of poppadom I want, so the system is asking me. Plain or spicy? Spicy. There you go. If that's everything, check out. I could add more items if I had a bit more time. But uh, I'll check out, and now my food's on the way. Thanks very much. So just for the avoidance of doubt, I disapprove strongly of live demos. Okay, it's Actually, very heroic I to do a live demo. I realized it wasn't displaying on the screen. I forgot to press the... The laptop <laughs> so you, d you didn't see anything. <laughs> but we trust you. Show them again? Yeah, please. Right. Hang on. Would you mind if we show yeah, it again? Please, yeah. please. They're nicer than I am. I would have said. Right. I'm going to do that again. So here we have uh, a, a, s a number of restaurants that we're supporting. The menu size is it's about 550 products in in this uh, in this menu. <coughs> Uh, so, actually, I'll, I'll try a, a different order this time. I'll open the menu and run through a different order. Why don't you ask the person on the first row to choose something? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy to do that in, in afterwards, but I, let me, just for saving time, let me just run through this. Uh, can we do requests? So. <laughs> I'm very hungry. Just for, simplicity, just for simplicity. So, I've gone into the restaurant, touching the screen to, to that restaurant. And now I can just speak in my order. I'd like two prawn crackers, a beef Thai Tom Kakai soup, a stir-fried chicken with garlic and chili, one duck ho fun with black bean sauce, three tofu fried rice, and a bottle of Diet Coke. Quite a big order. No. <laughs> there it is. Can I have some too? Well, you, well, you, yes, I, I hope you'll help me eat it. What you're seeing here is obviously the system's confirming what you've ordered. I'll tap that informational screen away and you can see that's all of the things I actually spoke and asked, asked for. Um, so all I need to do is check that, press the checkout button at the bottom, and my order's on the way. So I'm submitting your order. And there you go. So that compared to three and a half minutes for seven, eight, nine, ten items, that's the friction we're removing with our technology. <coughs> Could I please ask you to go back onto the main screen so that we have our lift yeah. back? Uh, John, do you want to take the first question? So Alexa was developed here in Cambridge, as you know. Um, yeah. So when you speak to the Amazon people, they tell you that the biggest issue is that 70% of the voice commands are actually accurate, 30% are inaccurate. So the hassle you have is that when you get your order back and they've misunderstood what you say, it does take as long as you say. And according to Amazon, 30% of cases, how do you deal with that? 
so we, we apply some error correction to the speech. The speech to text is the first stage of the process. So when I speak into the device, it has to transcribe what I say into text. And that process is error prone, particularly when you drill down into particular domains. But we apply some error correction techniques to that and recover a high degree of errors. And because we're very contextualized and, and we, we focus around the data sets of the uh, customer, we know what the names of those customer products are and we can influence the speech-to-text recognition system to make the recognition more accurate because some of them are <coughs> custom vocabularies, mm. makes the, mm. which influences the, the recognizers. So what we're feeding into our natural language processing engine is much more accurate than it would be if you were using Alexa. Because they actually only give you one transcript. We see all of the transcripts that come back from a speech-to-text engine, which makes us uh, enables us to do more things with, with those results. Thank you. Mandy? So I was very impressed with your um, the transcription and the accuracy of some quite tricky uh, words on your order. I was just trying to explore a little bit about how much of a problem is this and how much are customers prepared to pay for this convenience? Yeah, good question. Uh, so we are working with a few big brands. One of them is a big takeaway food brand. Uh, we've moved beyond the proof of concept to a stage two live trial now. Uh, so we're, we're underway with that live trial project. Uh, and they have told us this is, uh, you know, the high friction involved with ordering food, particularly at lunchtime where people only have an hour, through their app is, is a big problem. And I did specifically ask them, you know, why is it? What are you addressing by using voice? Why you, you know, what, what is your pain point here? And they were very clear that it's to improve the convenience factor significantly because certain orders, certain menus don't lend themselves well to a touchscreen because they're, the number of option permutations in, a, say, a Subway order or ordering a, a, you know, a, a Subway sandwich are, are immense, the number of permutations there. So that means in a touch-based app, you're, you're touching your way through a sequence of list options. It's very high friction. Andy? Yeah. Um, sorry, um, respect for the ambition, as in having competitors in Facebook, Amazon, Google, yeah. Microsoft yeah. is a scary place to be. Um, yeah. But you know, if you can win, um, exciting. Is, I'm just, are, are you envisaging yourself as a consultancy who uses someone else's um, natural language understanding or natural language re recognition um, here, or are you envisaging you have that core tech yourself? We have that core tech ourselves. We've developed our own proprietary platform for right. understanding spoken language. It's all of our own tech, except for the speech-to-text engine. Okay. Uh, we do want to bring that piece in-house as well, but it is our own tech otherwise. All of the semantic processing is our own. Okay, so you, you would, um, I'm just trying to clarify my understanding then, your long-term vision is to remain better than Facebook, yes. Google, etc. by being sector-specific. Right, okay. And, and your sector will be... And custom building the models for understanding language for a particular application by using the customer's data sets. Got it, okay. Yeah. And, and you've, you've clearly got some traction if you've got 10, 10 people working for you. Have you yeah. self-financed this or have you already taken... We've taken early, early seed funding back in 2013 and 14. A uh, long time ago. It's a long time ago, so we've been doing this a long time. Right. 
Uh, we've, in the interim period, we've been, obviously, the, the market's only just evolving and developing. You know, it's, as Amazon often says, it's day one in this space. So we've had to be very innovative to survive this long. Uh, but we've had great support from Accelerate Cambridge. We believe, you know, we, we've had great uh, comments about our demonstrations. We have four or five such demonstrations. And every time we show these to people, they say, wow, why, why, why isn't such and such doing that? Why can't we have that? Can I get this on the App Store? So it's that sort of great feedback that we get that keeps us going because we believe that we can be, we can remain better than the big, big competition. Uh, so, is, uh, sorry, mate. so I think that uh, Sophia is showing the list of people getting into Lyft, but you can have one more. Come on. No, I, mean, um, I, I can imagine trying to raise money to compete yeah. almost head on with some very large places is going to be quite hard. It's been difficult, yeah. And so is your plan to, um, to grow this from cash flow now from existing clients? Or? We still think we still need to raise money, and we are also uh, raising at the moment uh, to try, because we need to develop, we, we need to keep developing our IP to stay ahead of the competition. Uh, so, because you're British, I'm going to ask for you, how much are you raising? 750K. 750K. Okay. So, if anyone has a check for 750,000, uh, he'll be at the networking. Thank you very much, Tony. Last but not least. Hey, Shaisuke. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ben, and I'm the CEO of Swift Molecular Diagnostics. And this is a pregnancy test. <laughs> hundreds and millions, hun hundreds of millions of these are sold every year. Sorry, Ben. Oh, here we go. We started. Sorry, please go ahead. Sorry. All right. <laughs> hundreds of millions of these are sold every year. Why? Because they're cheap, they're fast, they're easy to use. And most importantly, they give you such a simple, straightforward answer. You know, this single line can be life-changing. Unfortunately, the vast majority of medical diagnostics need to be performed in a lab setting with expensive machinery and highly trained staff. But at Swift Molecular Diagnostics, what we're going to do is we're going to take those tests and we're going to put them onto devices like this. And we can do this because our patent is for uh, being able to detect DNA for specific sequences from specific diseases that basically the line will tell you if the disease is present or not. So our goal is to make one of these for every infectious disease, from antibiotic-resistant bacteria to neglected tropical diseases like dengue and Zika virus. In order to get to market as quickly as possible, we're starting with a scientific research tool. So there's a really big problem in uh, large pharma companies that do drug discovery, where there's a particular type of contamination that just makes their results inaccurate. The end result is that they can take drugs forward and spend lots of money on them, and they don't actually do what they think they were going to do because the experiments were contaminated. Zero tolerance policy. We're working with AstraZeneca. They currently spend £35 on each test. It uh, takes them five to six hours of relatively hands-on time to get the results. So with them, we are developing a rapid test, 15 minutes, eight pounds a unit that just says yes or no, is there a contamination? Uh, they have estimated that they would want to buy between 80 to 200,000 of these tests a year. So eight pounds a unit, that's up to 1.6 million pounds of revenue from just this first customer. And this isn't a bespoke AstraZeneca test. 
we're using AstraZeneca in order to have customer feedback and design tests that we know people want to buy. So last summer, we realized we needed a million pounds to get from our lab prototype to a product at the end of this year. Uh, and we have two investors who backed us, and we've divided that into three sequential uh, funding rounds. We're on uh, schedule, and we're under budget, so everyone's happy. Uh, the next one is coming up. It's 300,000 pounds of EIS uh, eligible funding. And even though we have these investors, they've just put so much into the company and they've given us so much value. So we are still looking for people who can build our team, who can bring experience, can bring value, and there is space to include them in these investment rounds to get our product into market. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. So given that Tony gave us a live demo, despite all, um, uh, all advice, when you got the pregnancy test out, I was like, please, <laughs> no live demo. <laughs> so um, I couldn't resist. I'm so naughty. Mandy, would you like the first question? Um, very, very interesting in terms of getting that quick test and, and reducing um, the, co the cost base. So there's a lot of work in DNA sequencing at the moment and really how that, understand, that understanding is emerging and new things coming out. What is, um, when you're saying you're doing your research, what is, what is the test you're actually looking at and how is that, uh, are you going to thinking to sell to research companies or are you thinking to sell into the medical profession? Is it regulated? I just wasn't quite sure what it was you were, so this first test is a scientific research tool. So it, the first customer is people like AstraZeneca and other large pharmaceutical companies. But it also cell, it's essentially a cell culture contamination test. Um, and basically that, that is a, one of the most highly used uh, scientific platforms. And it's actually a contamination called mycoplasma. And it goes inside the cells and causes it, them to change their gene expression and metabolism. So what this is, is basically a test that will detect the mycoplasma DNA straight from the cell culture and a line will be produced if there is a mycoplasma contamination. And what this then allows them to do is discard that and proceed with their experiments. The problem at the moment is it's too expensive and takes too long to implement routine testing. Okay, so you're, you're actually taking a, a tried and tested methodology that's already there and simplifying it and making it cheaper. Yeah, so essentially we are just transplanting existing PCR tests onto uh, a new way of doing it on a strip uh, that can go straight from the sample. Okay, so th no, that's, that's, that's very helpful <coughs> in sort of understanding where, where that is. So what, uh, what other um, clients have you, have you looked at? Have you, ever, have you got other clients other than AstraZeneca or is this a proof of concept so you're doing with them? At the moment, we're doing a proof of concept with them, uh, and it's even from the very basics of getting the raw samples, because these have to be done in uh, contamination hoods, so we go up to AstraZeneca and do it with them. So this is really, at the moment, we're developing the core test. We've done the initial tech transfer with a contract research organization, and now, over the next six months, which is what this funding round is for, we'll produce a pilot product that AstraZeneca will evaluate for us. The idea at the moment is that AstraZeneca is like the proof of principle. The needs for AstraZeneca are the same as the needs for other companies. And then 
basically by using AstraZeneca and having their approval, it will give us a kind of market access, and then we'll be looking to try and find a distributor. So what's your life cycle? What's your timeline for development? So with this product, we're aiming to have by the end of this year. It's a, a marketable? A marketable product that can be sold to AstraZeneca and on the shelf. Uh, and then that will allow us to start our fundraising, to start developing medical tests, which is a substantial leap just because of the kind of uh, the way the samples are, the kind of levels of detections and responsibilities you need. Okay, thank you. Great. John? So on the basis that things always take longer than you think, are you at risk of running out of money before you've got the AstraZeneca commitment or feedback? Well, I think... Because I can see, actually, if you get that feedback, and it's good, you're, you're on a platform to grow the business. But, but, what about, what about the worst case that it doesn't happen and you're struggling? So, with the great advice from the Accelerate, <laughs> I would say that we've raised more than we believe we need. So, for, for example, the now we're a bit ahead of schedule. We spent substantially less than we thought we would, like right, half. So I think what Ben wants to say is that he's been there where things have overrun and uh, uh, taken yeah. longer. <laughs> and, um, so I think he's learned the lesson the hard way. So you've cut yourself yes. some slack. Uh, quite a huge chunk of slack. Okay. <laughs> because, it, it, yeah, uh, as Hamdi says, it's been a, we've been around a while. <coughs> and um, uh, yes, things did. But that's actually quite an important lesson, because what many people fail to do is they always, I mean, you were, um, congratulations, you, you, were the, you were the most enthusiastic about your, your product that we heard tonight, and um, that's great, but that enthusiasm often gets converted to undue optimism, which means you can do it on half the money you think you can in half the time, and it rarely turns out that way. Yeah, we're doing our best. No, no, <laughs> you, you, you've done the right way. I, and but I think it's a lesson for everybody. Do make sure you plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Make sure you're properly funded to a meaningful milestone. Um, and that, that includes some slack. And I think that's one of the ways in which the investors have helped so much and that yeah. kind of knowledge and experience yeah. and we're kind of eager to, to soak that in and, and, and take it on board. Has this idea come out of the university? No. Uh, we were researchers at the university, but it was in our own time, so the you know, IP solely belongs to the company. Right. They're sneak out. So both, <laughs> both of them were uh, postdocs at the university. Well, you should come and talk to Cambridge Enterprise. Oh. Yes, definitely. We have. I, I like it. You're lowballing and you snuck away the technology. It's all kinds of dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. It's all above board. I promise. Um, the, the, the IP um, is, is yours, I think you, you said. Is a patent filed? or um, It's granted. Right. So it's granted in the GB, and then uh, we've got US, China, India, uh, EU, outstanding, takes got a few it. more years, but we've got the speedy GB granted, so um, it's published. Um, so your, your vision here is, is as a tech company, would you license this to someone else to manufacture, or are you looking at trying to sell tests yourself and maintain margin, or what's? Yeah, so our vision at the moment is that one of the issues we face is about credibility, because it's, it's a, you know, there's a real dogma around how you detect DNA and, and different ways in which you can do it. And of course, a couple of guys from Cambridge saying we can do it differently. So the idea of this kind of easy access market is we can build credibility, we can start selling a product and show that it's working ourselves, partner with a distributor as we start to gain traction with people like AstraZeneca, and then use that as saying, hey, look, people can use our test, it's robust, it works. That's where we can say we're credible to start developing a medical test, which is a huge undertaking. No, I thought it was a really good pitch. Good, thank you very much. Can we please thank Ben, please.
So uh, we are now going to open the session uh, to your Q&A, and I'm going to invite all four. Don't get too relaxed. Come back. So put your mic back, Tony. Everybody comes back. And I'm going to invite the co-founders that are in the room. So I know you're here, Thomas, and um, you're here too. Um, your co-founder is not here. No, 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 but don't, you know you're standing. You're tall, you're young, you'll stand. Um, why don't you guys come and uh, join for the Q&A? Um, whilst everybody's getting ready here, I just want to say, um, if you had heard their first pitch back in the day, you would see just the quantum leap that they've come to. Um, I remember your first pitch. You probably remember it too. Uh, Tony, you survived a year of miserable pitching. Um, so just want to say, pitching is an ongoing experience. It's not something that anyone gets good at in three minutes. It's something that you need to keep on practicing forever and ever until you decide to retire from the entrepreneurial world. Anyways, any, we've got mics in the room. Do we, do we have the mics in the room? <coughs> we don't have mics in the room? We do. Um, we have mics in the room, and it needs a battery. So, so we, we are having technical issues. Do never ever do a live demo. Um, remember that one? You're never going to live uh, to forget it. Um, now is your time to ask questions to the entrepreneurs or to ask questions to uh, the esteemed members of the panel. You like that one, don't you? Don't ask me questions. There's a question over there, and I'm going to give you my... No, here we go. And the co-founders... So, Ben, um, you, you were saying... This one's specific for you, because you were saying you could sell the test for, what is it, $8 rather than $35? Uh, pounds, please. Okay, pounds, dollars. Okay. How much of that's profit? recorded um, but <laughs> these these kind of tests these kind of lateral flow tests um, if you produce them in scale in India the they're about 18p per unit um, but we're doing our first one in the UK with a really quality manufacturer so it's a bit more but yeah I could tell you privately later if you're very interested <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about Capita AI. Or, so, um, how are you getting your data sets? Like, like, why would the companies have, why would the food companies have data sets on, like, people's voices? Uh, well, that's uh, that's not the, the data set. There's two sides to the data set. So, one is the utterance data, which can be collected through people like you and me, and then there's the data set, which are the menus. And uh, you know the big takeaway food ordering companies have about they support about forty, fifty thousand menus. So we need to suck in that data to seed our understanding models, as well as use utterance data, which we collect through we can collect through various ways like crowdsourcing or teams of people. We um, you know we get onto the case uh, commission to do it, or we've. To date, we've done a lot of that collection ourselves as a team. Thank you. Yes, my question is for John. What is the revenue model? Are you going to subscription or? It's, it's a freemium uh, subscription model. Yeah, so we give away the app for free and then we charge when companies want to collaborate. Uh, Great. 
sorry, I have, sorry. have to ask a yeah. question to Tony. I have to, sorry. Yeah. What about Scotland? Scotland. <laughs> Can you order 11 papadums? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. So, um, there was a question down there. Um, um, to AI, yes. Tony, Hi. great pitch and oh, product. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering how fast can you uh, tailor a product to a company which comes to you today? Uh, it typically it evolves through various stages. So the first stage is a proof of concept, and then it evolves to a trial and then it would evolve to a beta product. So pretty much three stages. So the first stage, we do a proof of concept within a few weeks with a subset of a customer's own data. And we can collect utterance data pretty quickly in that time frame. Once we've got that data, we can bootstrap a model literally very, very quickly within a few hours. But we need that data first. Thanks. And this is a question for Ben. Um, I imagine a big market for the diagnostic tests would be the NHS. It's actually quite difficult to sell into the NHS, and I wondered how you envisioned sort of getting in there. Um, well, yes, the short answer is it is very difficult. Um, so what we're doing is a kind of stepwise approach. So I talked about a scientific research tool. We also have a really credible guy on the board who used to work for the World Health Organization. So our next, next medical test we're looking to do would be a neglected tropical disease test funded through um, funding like Gates Foundation funding because those have accelerated approval. And so then those are kind of really high need tests like dengue fever or a disease called leishmaniasis which is horrifically uh, doing horrible things in Syria and other war-torn areas. And I think that for us, NHS would be a very long-term vision about, we'd have to have quite a very established technology with a real need uh, rather than uh, what we're looking for uh, initially. If that's, yeah. But we, we had talked to them a lot and they got very excited about an MRSA test and a C. difficile test, but ultimately I think it's those kind of structural bureaucratic changes that are very, very tough. Thank you. Um, I have a question for the panel, uh, specifically um, how much you care during the pitch, um, what is going to happen to your money? Uh, so what are they going to use your investment money for? And whether that should be mentioned in the pitch, specifically. Uh, uh, yes, I, I care what what's going to happen to it. I'd, it would be even better if I had some belief that it might come back at some point as well. Which, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in general, um, you know, most startups are going to be spending it on people. Um, here, or most of the startups that I work with are going to be spending it on people. It's unusual that I get a pitch that will come across saying we're going to invest three million in generating a manufacturing plant or whatever. So it's normally almost taken as read that it's going to be invested in people. Investing large amounts in marketing um, is a slightly scary pitch as well. So um, having a, a startup that is about to put a five million budget behind marketing, unless they can really persuade me why the, um, the levers are well understood that actually putting you know, 10 pounds onto this SEM campaign or whatever will generate 20 pounds of um, a gross margin back, then it's a quite a stressful um, pitch and it's hard to get money out of either angels or VCs in that scenario. Um, so in general, yes, people do care. It's not, it's utterly acceptable not to cover it in a three minute ele elevator pitch, but yes, it would certainly be something you'd be asking, you know, where are you gonna spend this money? And, um, and also the milestones, 
Yeah, most startups will have a, and I, I absolutely did this, I had a zero cost base, and then my plan went to 23 grand in month one. <laughs> um, yeah, and you just can't do that in reality. It's very, very hard to recruit people fast um, who are high, high quality. And you want some method of saying, actually, it's right to carry on expanding the overhead here, or no, it's not. So giving, having, it doesn't have to be formal milestones, but some idea of what the cost base is dependent on um, is, is helpful. Because the, the first pitch, you have no idea what you're going, going to sell. You don't know whether it's going to go faster or slower. It'll probably go slower um, here, and it'll probably cost more. You really want someone, you want to be talking to an individual on the other side of the table who is, who is going to be sensible about how they manage the overhead growth. I'm sorry, that's a very long answer. I'm sure there's yeah, true. Um, I think you have to look at different plans. You have to have a plan for success, but also you need to have a plan B. What happens if it doesn't doesn't quite work out? Um, and you have to have the ability to flip really quickly. Companies that fail usually are those that are staring different situations than the ones on which they raise money. And the ability to flip really quickly is good for investors. I think the other thing to remember is whatever you raise, um, your investors want 10 times that back. If you raise a million, they want 10. If you raise 10, they want 100. If you, and this is where it gets scary about the market size. So the more you raise, the more pressure you put yourself under to deliver. And the reason why it has to be 10 times is because if you take 10 startups, three will fail, four will do OK, one might be stunning, and that has to pay for everything else. Anything you'd like to add? No, I think it's all being said. <laughs> I have a question about um, the hub of, for food, for speech recognition. And I would like to know, and uh, mm, okay, probably uh, the algorithm is very fast and very accurate. But have you tried with uh, have very old smartphone? Uh, I don't know, because if, uh, if it has a very low, a very old uh, vocal recognition receiver, and in this case, probably the the ratio of uh, signal and noise is very low, and it's re in, in that condition, probably the algorithm is, is not so accurate, and uh, it's good to use like the previous, uh, the classic approaches, like use the touch screen in, this, in that case. How yeah. can you manage this situation? So, if I, so it's about how does it work as well with older phones where the the microphone isn't maybe as advanced, is that, is that fair? Is that your question? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, as I said, we, we apply a degree of error correction. And that might be worse if the phone is older and the microphone technology is older because the, you know, it doesn't do s noise cancellation so well, for example. Um, so, but, but I think, you know, how many people have really old phones now. The microphone technology is pretty good, uh, has been for a few years now. But we are also, you know, we're not, with our technology, we're not saying only use voice. We're saying voice augments the experience and can really shorten and, and make better the experience. You can still use the other modalities like touch if it makes sense to do that. So it doesn't preclude you using the, the other things. Uh, 
Um, ben, I'm sorry to ask a technical question in what is a, a business pitch, but if you have an answer, then I think it will strong, strongly improve your, your ability to deliver on your business plan. Um, so microplasma testing is an ideal scenario. You, you're growing your culture in optimal conditions. Mm -hmm. And very often, one of the limiters to people who are investing in diagnostics is the risk of false negatives. Have you collected proof of concept data to say that you are able to detect the levels of DNA present in early stage disease patients in those tropical disease areas to show that your technology will work? I think, yeah, it's a very technical question. Um, the answer is, is that when we're not at that stage yet, uh, this is why we're taking a sequential approach. Yeah, we believe we have some unique aspects to our pattern, our technology that allow us to essentially control the false positive, false negative rate as a kind of product of how long the prep test takes. But as you say, until you get to that stage where you've actually got the medical test and you're able to do, you know, remember you need um, <laughs> you need to have the patient samples. You need, you know, this is not a, something that you can do overnight, unfortunately. What we can do is essentially simulate it by expressing the genes we're targeting in, in bacteria and stuff like that. And so we, we have a good evidence base that our technology is, is good, uh, which is great. But ultimately, that's why I was saying there is that leap between a perfect, that's why we went for mycoplasma, it's this perfect conditions, perfect growth, lab scientists doing it, uh, huge amounts of material to start from. Uh, and there is gonna be that jump between the two, and that's gonna take time, money, and, and talent, yeah. I think all of the pitches were really good, so um, thank you very much for standing up in front of us and delivering them. I've got a question really for the panel um, about the pitches. What do you think were the best things that came through, and what, if anything, was missing from any of the pitches? So, you're <laughs> 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 my question to the panel. <coughs> so, really nice segue. So, um, Men, would you like to start? Um, I also thought the pitches were, were very good and there was a real range of different models and uh, different customers and I think you'd heeded a lot of the, the advice I think from, from, from the panel here around looking at your customers and making that uh, easy to do, so easy to understand. So thank you very much for that. Um, I think in three minutes it's really difficult to um, get everything over but I think you, you kept to the timeline. I think, you know, understand, and I think what you've done is generate more questions, and I think that's a really important part of the, um, the process. And hopefully there's p questions that you've generated for yourselves as well from the discussion, as well as, as uh, questions that, you know, I would like to ask you lots more questions as well. So I think that's, that's a really good uh, way forward. So I think, um, I think it's been, you know, well done, everybody. And I think it's, you know, from very different from a legal uh, stage to some, to, you know, some, some quite, um, at the, you know, edge cutting sort of uh, gene technology. There's quite a range of, of things there. So that's, uh, that's, that's very valuable in, in what you've, what you've shared. Um, I think being articulate is really important and hopefully you've got more questions and certainly I have uh, around those uh, <coughs> uh, those pitches you've made today so thank you very much 
Um, well, for me, I actually understood them all, which I think is, the, is, a, is excellent because so often you see, you see um, businesses being pitched and you think, you scratch your head and you think, oh, I don't really understand a thing about that. You don't want to ask a question because you might think you're a fool because you haven't understood the science, but this is all really clear. Uh, so I understood every single business proposition. Um, I think the other thing that was really good um, was that they're all engaging with customers of some level. They're all understanding the market. They know what they're trying to achieve. They're trying to identify the problems that are being solved. Some better than others. And I think um, you can see the different levels of enthusiasm that came across. They should all be really on the front foot. Watch your audience as well, because if, I don't know if you noticed it today, but audiences lean forward when they're really interested, and they lean back when they're not. So you have a chance of two minutes to get people leaning forward. But watch, watch the body language of the people you're talking to. You can tell whether you're sold in the first minute. Cool. Um, I, I, th I thought, uh, as in pitching to an audience of whatever we are, 200 people um, here for three minutes is a, a pretty artificial environment. As in, I, I can't remember the last time I saw lots of three-minute pitches outside of a business school um, here or an incubator or accelerator. So it, it, it does happen. Um, but it's worth remembering what the objective of that is. Um, ignoring every piece of advice you've got here, the only thing you're trying to do as an entrepreneur is to get the right to be able to call that person or contact them again afterwards. They're not going to make a decision to invest in three minutes. What you want is that they're interested enough, for whatever reason, um, that they will take your phone call or take your meeting afterwards. And the meetings after that are completely different. Yeah, you might start the pitch, and within 30 seconds, it's gone, gone off to actually the thing I'm really interested in is this, and it will become much more of a, a discussion um, here. So it's, it's really important to remember it's a sales process. Um, I thought you know, the things that were really great were there can be a tendency, particularly, you know, and I used to do this all the time, if someone's asking a question, going, God, I've employed people here, I need the money, and you get defensive quite quickly. And, um, and no one got defensive here. The, the, um, Questions were all answered in a constructive manner. It took me ages to work out, actually, I don't need to know the answer to every question. I, it's a, entirely acceptable to go, that's a really good point. Here, you know, can I just get your advice? How would you handle that? Whatever. And people don't think worse of you for, do, for doing that. They think, thank God for that. I can work with this person. I can coach um, the person. But I thought the pictures in general were great. Um, the only area I'd probably focus a little bit more on would be numbers. And maybe that's a personal preference. but. Um, um, the more numbers in a pitch, the, the better. Ultimately, I know there are mission, there are life-changing pitches being made here, particularly for um, detecting um, bacteria or whatever. But ultimately, as an investor, you are looking at the numbers. <laughs> um, here, so numbers are a big point, big part of virtually every pitch. But I thought they were great, and thank you for your time and energy. So I'd like you once more to thank um, our pitchers and um, before we send them to go back. And um, before I thank the panelists, I know I'm not on the panel, I'm just chairing it, but I am going to tell you what I liked. I like the fact that they, every single one of them, stuck to the rules. So yes, it's only in a business school environment or in an incubator environment that you'll be asked to pitch for three minutes, but this is the rule and they stuck to it. So if you're invited to pitch for 15 minutes, pitch for 15 minutes. Don't pitch only for three. 
don't pitch for half an hour. You will not, you know, in an ideal <coughs> world where you think that you're going to have half an hour or an hour with your investor, um, this is fantasy world. It will never happen. So make sure that you stick to the rules and they all stuck to the rule. They also, each one of them, um, stuck to the major rule, which is to pitch without slides. We are all uh, too reliant on slides. Um, at one point, Sinead lost her trail and looked back and realized that she didn't have her slides. Well, we, you need to be able to pitch your ideas and it needs to come from here. And when the slides, the technology, when everything doesn't work, you actually know what your business is about. And uh, they managed to do the pitch without slides. It's again, no minor feat. And finally, um, they all finished with an ask. They didn't let me think, you know, why did they waste three minutes of my life? Or worse, why did they waste 15 minutes of my life? They were all asking you for something actionable and quite clear. So that's also no minor feat. On the enthusiasm bit, um, so um, I could see some people getting really excited by um, Ben's amazing enthusiasm. You know, people nodding and uh, being really drawn by it. But then I heard John say, well, maybe you're so enthusiastic that you're overly optimistic. So you will never win them all. You will always be perceived differently by, um, so if there are 200 people in the audience, you'll be perceived in 200 different ways. So you need to be aware, you know, if you're too enthusiastic, you know, you'll be a naive fool. If you're um, too calm, you'll be too Scottish or Welsh, whatever you are, John, <laughs> and or boring. You know, so you can never win it all. So be yourself, and more importantly, you know, enjoy the process, which is really important. And now I would like you to join me into thanking our wonderful panel. So thank you very much for giving us. Thank you. Um, last but not least, I understand that there are four more pitches in the networking downstairs, um, but uh, rest assured that you'll be able to grab a beer and a pizza before you're pitched out again. And um, if you follow the team through the double doors, the pizza and the beers are downstairs waiting for you. Thank you very much for being here on Enterprise Tuesday. <laughs>